Let us pray. Father, uh, we've read some of your word tonight, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and uh, some pretty amazing and spectacular things that we see there. Uh, we pray that tonight you would give us understanding. Uh, by your spirit, please uh, work in us, give us understanding, and please uh, fill our hearts with the same kind of jubilation and, and worship uh, that all of the, the characters around your throne uh, show in this heavenly vision. Amen. One of you asked me last week, uh, why would I preach on Revelation here at Uni Church? Um, there's so many different interpretations of it, even among us, so why would I do it? Well, the first reason is because your elected committee told me to do it. <laughs> as well as Leviticus earlier this year. <laughs> and um, all of the teaching program here at Uni Church and Christian Fellowship is set by your committee. And next year's teaching program has been set um, uh, two weeks ago by this year's committee. And so uh, it's going to be great looking at that stuff. So um, it's because I was told to do it. Um, but the second more important reason uh, is because of our, our doctrine of Scripture. We believe, along with God's people throughout the ages, that all of Scripture is God-breathed, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, all of it, whatever is in our Bibles, is the inspired Word of God. And He's preserved it for us, because it's through the Scriptures, we see in 2 Timothy, through the Scriptures that we are made, so we are made wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And it's because Scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training to equip the church for ministry and for mission. So Revelation is, is part of God's inspired word to us. It reveals God himself and it reveals his plans for all of history. And as we read, we see it's all centred on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it all culminates in his eternal kingdom. And so what God intends for us to hear from him, and particularly here in Revelation, is how Christians can persevere until Jesus' return, when his kingdom will finally be established. Now, one of the beliefs one, and the expectations of Jews and first century Christians was that God's Messiah, his promised king, would come and establish his kingdom forever and ever. And in Acts chapter 1, even the twelve apostles thought that Jesus was going to do it right away. But they're told that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. Um, it doesn't stop people. There's still people who are out there trying to work out the exact time when Jesus is going to return. Um, there's even a website that has predictions of the rapture index about how likely it is that Jesus is going to return soon. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff out there. Um, but Jesus says we don't know him. So we can trust him. But as the years and the decades went by after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, um, and we're approaching near the end of the first century here as we look at Revelation, when it was written. Um, as you get to, to that time, nearly all of the apostles have died out. John, who wrote this one, they reckon he is the last apostle to still be alive. Uh, all the rest of them had been martyred. Uh, those with a living memory of Jesus were dying out. The eyewitnesses were disappearing. And additionally, the church was facing great persecution. And believers were beginning to wonder, is Jesus really in charge of the growth of his church? Because it's suffering so much. 
They'd be wondering, has Jesus really been victorious? Is he really the Messiah if he hasn't established his kingdom? Is he really coming back? And it's into this context that God gives John this revelation of what was, what is, and what is to come. And it's to show that God himself is in control of all of history. And the hope of eternal life in paradise is still real. That's why I gave this revelation. Because Jesus has overcome. He has done that in the cross. And it's just a matter of time until he returns. So revelation was written to encourage and to spur on believers who attempted to give up because Jesus hadn't come back yet. And so nearly 2,000 years has passed from then until now. And we find that Jesus still hasn't returned. Christians are still persecuted. We still struggle with sin and pain and death and a broken world. And so Revelation is just as relevant for us today as it was then. And so this is why we're going to Revelation this term. It's a great book to encourage us as we wait for Jesus to come back and as he reveals to us what is going to be happening. So if we look at chapters 4 and 5 tonight, um, what better way to encourage the hearts of believers to persevere than to give them give us a glimpse of the heavenly throne room of God. Last week, chapters 2 and 3 showed us the chaos, the sin, the, the pain of churches in Asia Minor. This week, chapters 4 and 5 are a stark contrast. They show us that God is still in control despite all of that. Everything in the heavenly throne room is calm and collected, happening as it should be. And it's like looking into the control tower of a busy airport. There's chaos on the ground and in the terminal, but up in the tower there is peace and calm and order. And that's what's happening tonight as we look at chapters 4 and 5. So in our very lives, the, the turmoil that we experience, the chaos in our world, the struggle with sin, the presence of sickness and death, we're invited to join John as he peers into the most holy of places, the throne room of God in heaven, the Oval Office of the universe. I wonder if you're ready to do that tonight. Chapter 4, verse 1. You'll see it on the back of your outline if, if you don't have the Bible with you. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, uh, it's after the first vision of chapter 1 to 3, John says, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. Now, on the other side of the door... We're going to be seeing the destiny of humanity and of God's people. That's what's going to be revealed to John. And that particularly is the establishment of the kingdom of God, of God's forever kingdom. That's what's on the other side of the door. Uh, now, the whole book of Revelation is dripping with Old Testament imagery. If you've read any of the Old Testament, um, there's a whole lot of pictures and stuff that come through that are in Revelation. It is... Um, if we know our Old Testament, it'll help us to understand Revelation better. Um, and especially from the books um, of Daniel and Ezekiel uh, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, um, those kind of prophets, they have so much stuff that is picked up in Revelation. And one of the main themes in those books is about God establishing his eternal kingdom through his Son. Uh, and this establishing of his kingdom has already begun began when Jesus first came to earth. Um, in Mark chapter 1, you might know it, that Jesus went and he preached the gospel message and he said, Repent and believe the good news, 
for the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus was bringing in the kingdom of God as he came to earth the first time. And his kingdom is going to be finally established when he returns. So what God is going to show John as he enters through this door is, is God establishing his kingdom. And that's what's recorded for us in the rest of the book of Revelation. You see images of tyranny and chaos and persecution and destruction and the final victory of God. He's showing his history. But John says that this kingdom has already begun to be established. We saw last week in chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus has already overcome. He has already been victorious. And he's now seated with his father um, on the throne. Have a look at the, the second last verse of chapter 3. Just a couple of verses, two verses before chapter 4. Revelation 3.21. So we saw this last week. It says, To the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. And so Jesus has won. His kingdom has begun. But what is yet to happen is for his kingdom to be established completely. And that's what's taking place today, every day between Jesus' first and second coming. And to keep John and his fellow brothers and sisters going in the meantime is this majestic vision of heaven in chapters 4 and 5. So in verse 2, we see immediately I was in the spirit, like we saw back in chapter 1 of the first vision, and a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne... And the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. And this throne, it's mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. It's no accident. It's wanted to emphasise God's sovereignty over everything. Every part of the creation finds its significance in relation to this throne. And particularly the one seated on the throne. He is at the centre of the universe. Uh, we see in that verse that uh, the one seated on the throne looks like precious stones. We don't actually see, it doesn't say that he has a human-like body. It just says that it looks like precious stones. In chapter 21, they represent God's glory and majesty. The rainbow, it speaks about mercy. Uh, like the rainbow that appeared to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9. It's a reminder that, that God is a merciful God. He is faithful to his promises. But also coming from this throne are flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder in verse 5. Now this is hearkening back to Mount Sinai where God spoke to Moses. Around this throne are seven fiery torches which verse 5 explains to us are the seven spirits of God. The fullness of God's Holy Spirit. There's an expanse like a sea of glass around the throne. It says it's like crystal. But also around the throne, in verse 4, are 24 other thrones. And there are 24 elders sitting on those thrones. Now, what does this 24 represent? Um, well, later in, in uh, Revelation, uh, it tells us that it's the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles. So basically, it's symbolising all of God's people from before the cross and after the cross. Uh, these elders who are on the throne dressed in white, talking about their purity and their holiness. They've got gold crowns on their heads, uh, symbolises power and authority. But you'll see down in verse 10 that they cast their crowns down before the one in the middle. Their power and authority is in submission to the one who is in charge 
the one on the throne in the middle. Then John tells us of these strange living creatures in verse 6. Um, there's four of them, and Ellie did a great job trying to uh, represent those for us. <laughs> uh, the whole point of this is just, it's really impossible to imagine what this vision would be like. Um, and so Ellie did a great job with that. Um, but there's four of these living creatures. Um, they're covered front and back with eyes. They see everything. They encircle the throne, and together they represent all the living beings that God has created. The lion, the king of all the animals. The calf or the ox represents strength, the human wisdom, the even speed. And all these creatures, they know their right place before the throne of God. And now all of this vision of the throne room, it's pretty vibrant kind of language. And um, if you knew your Bibles, well, you'd be thinking that John should be busted for plagiarism with this, if there were such a thing back then. Except it's all God's word. But it's, it's very similar to Ezekiel chapter 1. Um, the prophet Ezekiel, he had a vision. Uh, let me read to you some of, that, some of what he saw. So uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 says to Ezekiel the prophet, the heavens opened and he saw visions of God. In verse 4, Ezekiel 1 says, I looked there and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. And in the centre of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. Verse 5, the form of four living creatures came from it. Now here's the four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. They look at different. Verse 10, the form of each of the faces was that of a man, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. Now verse 22 talks about the shape of an expanse, with a gleam-like, awe-inspiring crystal was spread out over the heads of the living creatures. Verse 24, when they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of mighty waters. We saw that back in chapter 1. Like the voice of the Almighty and a sound of commotion like the noise of an army. Verse 26, the shape of the throne with the appearance of sapphire stone was above the expanse. There was a form with the appearance of a human on the throne high above. From verse 27, from what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber and what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the form of the Lord's glory. And when I saw it, Ezekiel says, I fell face down and I heard a voice speaking. Very similar visions. And just as John's vision in Revelation came at a time when God's people thought that he'd abandoned them, well, so too with Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel's vision came after Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians and taken away in exile to their capital city, away from their promised land. Likewise, the Old Testament prophet Daniel, his vision was during the time of exile in Babylon as well, the same time as, as Ezekiel. And his vision was all about giving hope to God's people. Now these wild descriptions of heaven and God's coming kingdom, they're to show us that despite the circumstances, um, what they might indicate, God is glorious. He is powerful, he is in control, he is seated on his throne. And so as we jump back to Revelation, that's why in verse 8, 
day and night, these living creatures never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. He is the God of history. He is powerful. He is holy. He is perfect. And when these four living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to the one seated on the throne in verse 9, the 24 elders, they do likewise in verse 10. They fall down before the one seated on the throne, it says. They worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and they say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. So the picture we're getting here in this, um, this throne room scene is of all creation, human, animal, angelic, all bowing before God in worship. And the reason for that we read in verse 11 is because he is their creator. They all exist, we all exist because of his will. He made us. God is to be praised and worshipped because he's the giver of life to all. Now the reason you and I are here right now in this moment, the reason you just took that breath, and that breath, and that breath, I hear some heavy breathers over this side, I think they're not asleep. The reason your heart beat just then, and then, and then, is because God gave that to you. He is the giver of life. And the right response is to give him glory and honour and power. To lay our crowns down before him in worship. But as, all, um, but as all is ordered and in control in this heavenly throne room, we get to chapter 5 and there's some drama. And there are three surprises that we just don't really expect. And the first one is that there's a scroll there that no one can open. Uh, chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And there was silence. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And John says he cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or ever look in it. The unopenable scroll, written on front and back, that's complete, comprehensive, bound by seven seals, that no one is worthy enough to open. In Ezekiel chapter 2, in Ezekiel's vision there, and in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's vision, they too speak of scrolls that are sealed. Okay, Ezekiel does it, Daniel does it, now John is seeing it here. And these scrolls, they contain messages in the same way, on the front and on the back. And they're messages of lamentation, of mourning and of woe. These Old Testament scrolls, they carry a message of judgment. That's what's sealed up inside them. And that is exactly what's on John's scroll. Um, and we'll get to it uh, starting next week as the the scroll gets opened up, we'll look at those seals and we'll see the judgment of God through chapter 6 to 20 of Revelation. But the problem is that no one is worthy to open it. So John cried and cried, he's in despair because the seals just can't be broken. God's glorious plan can't be revealed. The dragon and his evil beast that we'll meet later, they'll continue to attack the people of God. 
So John is, is very distraught. But his despair is, is short-lived. Because one of the elders declares, there is one worthy. Verse 5 tells us, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has been victorious. Here the hero has arrived in the story, and he can open the scroll and the seals. Now the lion of Judah, Genesis 49, the root of David, Isaiah 11, they are two identities that the Jews had for the coming king. That's who they were looking for. Uh, the tribe of Judah was the victorious tribe, the conquering tribe. And the awaited king, it was going to be a, a descendant of King David. So Israel's hopes, they were tethered to this person, uh, to the king who's going to come and to conquer and to judge their enemies uh, and liberate God's people and establish God's forever kingdom. But in verse 6 comes a surprise. Rather than seeing this noble and, and victorious and strong lion, is the exact opposite. John looks and he sees one like a slaughtered lamb. Now, who's ever heard of a victorious lamb? <laughs> you might as well have neon signs over the lamb saying, yeah, come and eat me. They've <laughs> got no attack, no defence. Um, countries that want to show their power, they don't use lambs for it. Um, Russia elevates the bear. Britain, the lion. France, the tiger. America, the eagle. Yeah, they're all ravenous. But the kingdom of heaven is symbolised by a helpless lamb. It's quite a paradox. Is New Zealand is their symbol of the lamb, is it? Sure. I don't know. <laughs> um, but what's more, it's not just a lamb, it is a slaughtered lamb. A picture the lamb being held by the Peter activist. You know, you might know, you know that one. Um, yeah, in, in real life, this image is shocking. I was in two minds whether to show it to you or not. Um, you can't really make it out there. But it is a really shocking and disturbing image. But it is not as shocking as a person who is looking like a slaughtered lamb. That's who we see in Revelation 5. And they're standing before the throne of God. What is he doing dripping blood on the crystal floor of God's oval office? He's wrecking the place. And to make this butchered, massacred lamb even more frightening are the seven horns that are coming out of his head. They represent power, uh, the fullness of his power. It's got seven eyes as well that see everything. Um, verse 6 tells us that, that they're the spirit of God. The horns and the eyes, they're the spirit of God. Now John's vision into heaven is rapidly turning into a bit of a B-grade horror movie, isn't it? It reminds me of the time when my twin sister invited a bunch of her friends over to our place uh, to watch a horror movie. Um, I think we are probably in about year 10. Um, after strict instructions from my parents to leave them alone, I managed to sneak in and I waited for the perfect moment under the couch. <laughs> and just as a child who had come back to life was hiding under the bed, <laughs> with a scalpel uh, in hand ready to cut the Achilles tendon uh, of the unsuspecting victim who was sitting on the bed and you could just see these, these feet there I ran my hand along the backs of all the Achilles <laughs> <laughs> and I'd never heard such a scream <laughs> and I did get in a bit of trouble for that <laughs> but what is it with the lamb? Why a lamb? 
Well, the lamb is an important image in the book of Revelation. It's used 32 times from this point onwards. But it's also significant through the rest of the Bible. And most importantly, it is in the Exodus, where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, as part of the plagues that God issues to, to um, change Pharaoh's mind, to redeem his people from Pharaoh, the Israelites are to slaughter a lamb. They're to smear its blood over the top of the, the entryway to the house, over the doors. And then they are to, to eat the roasted meat. So that when later that night the Spirit of God came to Egypt, uh, the Spirit would pass over the homes with the blood on the doorway, but would enter into all the other homes and take the life of the firstborn. And so in doing so, Pharaoh finally let God's people go. This lamb was called the Passover lamb, and Israel were to celebrate that, that event every year. They called it the Passover festival. And as Jesus spoke about his own impending death, uh, as we get to the New Testament, he, he referred to himself as the Passover lamb. John the Baptist says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is mean by that all those who find shelter in his blood will escape the wrath of God, will escape the judgment. In Revelation chapter 1, uh, we looked at Revelation 1 two weeks ago in verse 5. Uh, we see there that God sets us free from our sins by Jesus' blood. But his blood only flows as he is sacrificed, as he is slaughtered, as he is crucified for all to see. So in Jesus' death, in shedding his blood, Jesus rescues us from the punishment we deserve for our sin. But death couldn't hold this lamb down. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He bears the scars today. Now this is John saying what heaven is like now. Jesus is there looking like a slaughtered lamb. He is our Passover lamb. He rescues and he redeems us. And this is why, uh, because of his death, this is why this zombie lamb can do what no one else in all the universe can do. He can walk up to God on the throne and he can take the scroll from God's right hand. He is worthy. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. And why is he worthy? Because of his death. Have a look at verse 8. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You ever wonder what your prayers are like? That's what they're like. They're like a fragrance to God. And they sang a new song, verse 9. You, this talking to the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Did you see why the living creatures and the 24 elders sing their new song? Because Jesus is worthy. Because he was slaughtered. Because he redeemed people from every nation by his blood. And here's where we see the third surprise. Everyone worships the Lamb. We've got the four living creatures and the 24 elders worshipping him. Verse 11, there's gazillions of angels singing to him. Verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under it and in the sea, all singing praises to the Lamb. 
And what's amazing and surprising is that the songs in chapter 4 that were directed to God on the throne are now directed also to the Lamb. So verse 13 we read, Blessing and honour and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. What's happening in this heavenly throne room is that the Lamb is, is now put on the same level as God himself. They now worship the Lamb as God because that's who he is. Not just because he was a top bloke or a gifted healer or a fine preacher or a spiritual guru or a prize stud brand. It's because he died. Because he purchased men and women for God with his blood. That's why Jesus is worthy. Now I don't know how you picture Jesus, but God says here we should picture him like a slaughtered lamb. A slaughtered lamb for you and me. But he has been victorious. This vision that John gives us of the heavenly throne room is the reality of what's happening in heaven right now. All of God's creatures worshipping him. And we too should worship at Jesus' feet. And tonight I want us to consider how this heavenly reality shapes our reality. Jesus has already overcome. He's defeated sin and death at the cross. And what is your response going to be to him? He's our creator, our redeemer. He's worthy of all power and honour and glory and blessing. Will you bow before him and, and wash yourself in his blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you be one of the redeemed people who are fit to live with him forever? If you're a Christian... Does this heavenly vision given to John, does it encourage you to persevere in the Christian life? Does knowing that Jesus and his Father have it all in hand give you comfort? Because it should. In our topsy-turvy lives with pain and suffering and, and death, look to God's vision of the throne room in heaven. And don't let go of that. And don't think that living the way that this uni lives will give you the comfort that you want. See, in, in John's vision of God's throne room, how it's all in order. God has it all under control. The victory has already been won, and it's time to sing a new song in your heart. Sing like the angels in heaven, and every creature on earth. Sing a new song to God and to the Lamb for His blood that has purchased us for God. I wonder if you just sit back from all the details and graphicness of it for a moment. Do you see Jesus and his Father at the centre of it all? The centre of everything? Do you see everything in, in this universe revolving around the slaughtered lamb who shed his blood for you? Do you know this deep in your heart? That life and existence and, and everything revolves around him. That even your life revolves around him? Or is your life all about you? When did you ever defeat death? Or purchase people for God? Or approach the throne of God and, and open the scroll? When did countless angels of heaven ever worship you? We need to sit back and, and to see that the magnificence of God and our smallness, that we revolve around him, but to see his, his love, that he would shed his blood for us. 
incredible mixture. God is at the center of everything. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, if this really is a true vision of the heavenly throne room, surely that's going to rattle our small little worlds, isn't it? With our fake $2 shop plastic crowns. <coughs> what fake $2 shop plastic crowns do you have? What is your king? You study your king. Are the opinions of your parents and friends your king? Is popularity your king? Your health? Your appearance? Your sexuality? What is it that you're living for? That you cast your crown before? And friends, none of those things that we might be living for are going to go on forever. And they're never going to satisfy in the meantime. It's only God who lives forever and ever. And those who cast their crowns down at his feet. Those who wash themselves in the blood of the slaughtered lamb. They are the redeemed ones who will live forever with God in paradise. So I want to encourage you, find your identity, find your significance in relation to the throne in heaven. Find your security. Find your freedom in the blood of the slaughtered lamb. Find your acceptance in the God of the universe shedding his blood for you. He is victorious. He was, he is, and he is to come. It's a custom here to have questions after my talk, um, and so it'd be great to hear what you'd like to ask. Representations of of um, of his character, of his power. Um, really, um, whenever people in the in the Bible um, uh, had, no, no one has ever seen God because the, the thought was that if you ever saw God, you would just die. Um, and so, what people see is they see representations of what God is like. Um, and so that's what's happening here as we look into heaven. We're not actually seeing what it's going to be um, physically like. It's a representation of, of the way that things are for us to understand who God is and who we are in relation to him. Um, yeah, and so is Jesus going to be um, a lamb? No, I don't think so. Um, is he going to be riding a, a horse? I don't think so. Is he having a sword come out of his mouth and head? I don't think so. They're, they're just representations of, um, of his character. So, um, yeah. So, the horns that we see in chapter 4 are symbolic of his, of his power, the Spirit's power. Um, 
and it's just represented in a different way in chapter one. Josh? What was the problem with the judgment of not being able to be read out? Why? Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, why couldn't they um, read the judgment of God then? Or in Revelation, do you know? In Revelation, why couldn't they read it? Um, good question, Josh. Uh, um, the, the question is, is about whether someone is worthy to open it. Um, uh, so it's not about, not about strength, uh, but are they worthy? Um, Yeah, so I, I think, yeah, um, yep, so he, he, he earned the right by, um, yeah, by his sacrifice, by giving his blood. Um, but I'm just trying to think, I think I, it, it might have to do with um, a, a human person needed to open those scrolls. Uh, and so uh, because of Jesus' humanity and his divinity together, um, that qualifies him to, to open the scrolls. What was the consequence of not being able to read and the to such national of people in general sadness? Um, of John, like why was he so sad? Yeah. To, to not uh, to not see it. I think because uh, because of the, the, the pain, like when you look through chapter two and three and see what the Christians were going through um, back in that first century, they were all wondering like when is God going to come back? Um, and and so I think this uh, this is just showing to us that they're wanting something to, to encourage them to keep going on. And so the, the, the pain they have is they don't know what's going to happen in the future. And so God gives them this vision. And without Jesus coming and opening the scroll, they're not going to know that God has all of this um, in hand. Yeah. It's, it's almost like if there's no one to open the scroll, who's... Who's in, who's in control, kind of thing. Who's, who's got the future in their hands? Yeah. Yeah. A little answer in the study Bible. I was just saying if you wanted yeah. to read it out. Yeah, good. Cool, that sounds good. Um, yeah. You said that it's really a deep Um, so the Old Testament expectation of those, um, those parts in, in uh, Ezekiel and, and Daniel, um, they're attached to a person who is coming who is going to be able to do those things. Uh, one like a son of man uh, is the language of Daniel 7. Um, and here's the one who's going to approach the throne of God. And so the Old Testament um, uh, prophecies were about a human who was going to go and do that. With the, the worthy part, mm -hmm. the, the, um, like he's the lamb who was slain and therefore he's worthy. So is, is that reflecting like in Philippians 2? Like that idea that mm. Christ humbles yep. himself and so it's this idea, like, I'm just trying to get my head around the idea that he wasn't worthy but then he is worthy after yep. he's been slain. Yeah, yeah. so we, we see even uh, in, in Philippians 2, when we, we read that out, um, 
uh, which says, I mean, the, the, the emphasis in Philippians 2 is that, that we should have the attitude of Jesus, yeah. the complete humility. Yeah. But then we read about Jesus' humility, given that example. And it says that Jesus uh, existed in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's through Jesus um, uh, serving, becoming that, um, that Passover lamb that God exalts him. Uh, and so in his... Uh, so he had glory with God before um, he came to earth. Uh, but uh, Romans 1 actually says it a little bit um, clearer as well. Um, Romans 1 verse 1 uh, talks about Paul, called an apostle, um, uh, to proclaim the good news, which God promised long ago through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and his verse 4 is, is what I wanted to get at. And he was established as the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Uh, and so Jesus becomes the powerful son of God, um, seated at the right hand of God um, because of his, his death and resurrection. Um, so he was glorious, but he shows his, his love and his character by coming to earth. Um, and God exalts him and glorifies him even, even more. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions, friends? What do we do? What the 24 elders do and pray and realize that our prayers are fragrant offerings to God, their bowls filled with incense. Father, we want to thank you for this vision that you gave to John um, of, uh, of, of the heavenly throne room. And we thank you that it, it shows us um, that you are in control, uh, despite what it might look like from our end. We thank you that all of time and history are in your holy hands. We ask that, that you help us to cast our crowns down before your throne and to worship your name. We ask that you help us to sing a new song, a song of victory and of joy, because the Lamb has died and has purchased us for God. We pray that our lives might centre around the risen Lord Jesus, Help us to worship him and leave him alone.